This episode of Echoes in the Bone is brought to you by the Institute of Cultural Policy and Innovation, ICPI. ICPI, providing services in business development and coaching. ICPI, leaders in online training in event planning and intellectual property. Visit our website today at www.icpi-ja.com. On this episode, we speak to one of Jamaica's most influential music producer and entrepreneur, Cleveland Cleavy Brownie. Cleavy is part of one of Jamaica's most successful production team, Steely and Cleavy, who have produced major hits for Shabaranks, Sean Paul, Don Penn, Foxy Brown, and Billy Ocean. Welcome to Echoes in the Bone. We have a very special guest this episode. He's a renowned producer and songwriter and musician. Cleavy Brownie, or Cleveland Brownie, part of the Steely and Cleavy duo of producers who ruled 1990s dancehall and was responsible for some of the most famous rhythms of the 1980s and the 1990s and producing some of the great songs of our time, including the big hit from Don Penn, No, 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 You Don't Love Me, which they remade and made it into an international, you know, hit. Cleavy, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me, man. Well, we go a long way, way, way back from yeah. about 30 years or more. Yeah, you know? coincidentally, I was watching that uh, broadcast on te- GBC television yeah. earlier today, coincidentally. Which one? You know, you know, and then I have to look back at it, where you interviewed Steely and Cleve at Mixing Lab. Oh, yes, yes, that famous thing. Time really flies, because that yeah. was me. Years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and we also had a little more flesh. <laughs> exactly, yes. Yeah. yeah. That it's bad, I mean, it's good that we keep it. You know, we get healthier. <laughs> Listen, tell us about your journey, where it all started. You're, you're, you're part of a, a famous, famous musical family, the Brownies. So tell us about your start in the industry. Yes, well, I think I had a liking for music the minute I was born, I suppose so, because I cannot directly look back at exactly when it started. But I remember from as far back as I can recall, my mother playing guitar and piano. So I believe it came from that time. It was later on in life I found out that her parents and her grandparents also played instruments going back to slavery days. Wow. You know, so it seemed to have um, been a part of our DNA, you know, something that we can't quite explain. But I believe music is a gift to a certain extent. Um, Some person, not everyone can really learn it if you don't have that um, that inborn thing. um, you You might be able to learn music or to excel to a certain level. I don't truly believe that. It is for everyone. And um, I believe it was for us, the Brownies, our family. We all chose that as a career choice from early on um, in life. But um, in 19, about 1969, so is when I recall um, my father taking home instruments for our Christmas gift. 
but they were all plastic instruments. And I remember one of my brothers um, chose the trumpet. He, he said, choose what you want. And it was little things like toy trumpets and saxophone, a single drum, and you know, all those things, a, a clarinet, which none of us really playing those things today. But we used to listen to Herb Alpert, a trumpeter, and I remember it was Danny who chose trumpet. But he was so he was disappointed when he tried to mimic Herb Alpert's trumpet sound and instead was getting this little fifi wee wee sound. So, so, you know, we have to learn how to really play the real thing. But my mother started us out learning parts like gospel music, singing SATB, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. You know, and we learned harmony from that time and we just loved what we heard. You know, instead of just singing a melody of a song, when you hear somebody next to you harmonizing. Of course, we heard it on recordings, but when you're in the midst of that, it's an experience like a, uh, beyond any, when you're in the middle of that harmony group. Yeah. You know, and from there, we basically learned, um, going up into 1970 or so, 71, started listening to pop music and um, music on the radio in general, and found that the movement of the voices was not like church music. You know, it was, that was more um, strict to European, you know, um, church music. Coming out of the history of Gregorian chants and all that, we're using more than three notes was considered sacrilegious. You know, um, we found that, you know, learning the history. You know, we say, you know, in this day and age, we can't limit ourselves to church music movement. So we started listening to more and more pop music. We also had the opportunity of some of the today's well, icons, actually, coming by our home. Because my father was a builder, and he built a room on the house for music specifically. When he started hearing us you know, beating that little toy drum and all that, he wanted to keep the noise out of the house. When he came home, he was tired at times. And then Glenn started a sound system, being the eldest one. You know, um, I should have mentioned, um, my brothers are Glenn Brownie, Dalton Brownie, now deceased, um, Noel Brownie, residing um, and uh, Danny Brownie, Main Street Records, and myself. And um, we had visitors to the house who showed interest in finding a studio. They thought we had a studio there, but it was just a room for storing the disco equipment and also for rehearsing. You know, if we wanted to harmonize and sing out loud, we went in that room. And um, Keith, from Keith and Tex, used to come by. Also Bob Handy. Bob Handy, um, also the Now Generation band had rehearsals at my home from time to time. And that is what sparked my interest in drums, especially, because um, I used to watch the drummer a lot and say, no, that is the instrument I want. And one day, Glenn, my eldest brother, asked, outside of the Fifi plastic toy instruments, which instrument each of us would have wanted to play? I chose drums immediately. Glenn wanted to play bass. My father used to travel to the States 
And um, anything we really wanted, he would try to accommodate us. Not to spoil us or anything, but for us to choose what we really would enjoy. Because um, I believe you're not really successful in life. If you, no matter um, what training you get, what level of tertiary institutions you might have gone to, if you're not happy what you, with what you're doing, you know, you haven't really, you, you're not a success. That's how I look at it. And music is what we chose, you know, and um, we are successful in that. Even if we never made any money from it, whatever, that is what we enjoy doing, you know, and we dedicate the rest of our lives to. We are passionate towards playing music, writing music, singing producing now, you know, as we transition, you know, but um, with the visit to the house of those um, icons like Keith and Tex, Keith introduced Glenn to guitar, I remember, he was the first person to put a guitar in Dalton's and Glenn's hands, but Glenn really wanted to play bass, so he asked my father to bring back a bass guitar for him on one of his trips to New York where he has um, other family members living. And my father thought it was better to bring a six-string instrument because four on the bass was too small, so he always wanted to outdo even what we wanted. But when it came, Glenn was disappointed. His face dropped, you understand? His countenance cried, no, that's not it. But my father said, this has six strings and not four. Those days, you never had five and six string basses. Yeah. Of course, today you have that. But um, Dalton took the guitar and said, well, this is what I want. So Glenn had to wait for the next trip. And he got his bass. And it was some time after before I got a real drum kit. The drums was too noisy in that area at the time. And not being a real studio, the sound would leak. Sound would get out. You know, so um, that was not a problem for me, but I used to take my mother's baking spoons and they put set up boxes and beat whatever I could hit around the house, just not knocking because drums is what I wanted to play. Until the No Generation Band brought their equipment there and left them for about the, the weekend. And you know what happened? I mean, having left their equipment, <laughs> it's like a yeah. child in a candy store. I mean, yeah. we made use of the time. <laughs> of course, um, I never had any training at the time. So it was a few years after I met Paul Douglas, who also came to the house. Paul Douglas is the first drummer that actually put drumsticks in my hand the right way. Taught me how to hold the sticks and until it felt comfortable. So he, I would attribute to being the first and also Willie Stewart from Third World. Then as time progressed, it was Willie Stewart who actually sold me the Oberheim DX drum machine. Third World used to travel and yeah. bring home the latest equipment. But the Oberheim DX was a precursor to the Oberheim DMX. So he got a DMX to replace the DX and thought that, well, that was inferior. So I bought it, or my father bought it for me. 
And um, that became the sound of the 80s and even up to today. Yeah. You have using the Oberon DX sound. Yeah. Yeah. Reggaeton, for instance, is still here. Still, still DX sounds. Yeah. And wow, it just left a legacy of um, hits. Well, before you got here, uh, you, 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 you joined a band. Was it the No Generation? Yeah, I played occasionally with the No Generation band, just at the advent of, um, you know, Freddie McGregor was a sing, the lead singer yeah. in the band at the time. And um, the band became members of the 12 tribes of Israel, Rastafarian movement. And um, I think the drummer had migrated, the original drummer, Lagi, it was, yeah, he moved to the States. And I was invited to play drums. So during that trans transitional period, they were moving away from the big Afro, Freddie McGregor with his big Afro year style. Uh -huh. You know, and everybody start, yeah. you know, dreadlocks. Yeah. You know? So you're moving from Seoul to Rasta. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because I should have mentioned that the Brownie Bunch, my brothers and I, we actually went in the studio first with Jeffrey and Mikey Chung, who... So I don't know who actually told them about us, but somebody who came to the house told them about us. And I think they saw us as the Jamaican answer to the Jackson Five. And we recorded in 1972 a cover of Michael Jackson's We've Got a Good Thing Going. The Jackson Five, We've Got a Good Thing Going. And from there, I actually started experiencing studio. In, at the highest level and production mm -hmm. at the highest level, musicianship at the highest level. And I think that helped to set the bar for me in judging standards because Jeffrey and Mikey Chung were two of the most meticulous musicians and producers I ever met. You know, and um, of course they produced a whole slew of hits during that period of time. Jeff is now deceased. You know, I may soul rest in peace. But he was major inspiration for me with regards to production. Also, in the hallways, you, you know, sometimes we took a break during the recording process. And I could hear them discussing issues like surrounding copyright and publishing. And you know, those sort of things. I said, what are those? Because those days you just was interested in hearing a song on the radio. You know, that, that was the greatest thing if you yeah. heard the song that you recorded on, on the radio. But it sparked interest. And later on in life, I, um, during my years of when I started touring, having um, joined the student, not the studio one band, it was the Generation Gap first. And the Generation Gap band eventually members got pulled into the 12 tribes of Israel band you know, all as members of the 12 tribes of Israel. And during that period of time, um, I started wearing my red, gold, and green tam. <laughs> and um, I and die outfit, and I recall yeah. the very first time I brought the outfit um, on one of the gigs and said, Cleve, put on this. I had on a full white outfit, and I had to put on the tie and die outfit over the full white. Yeah. But drummers sweat, and for some reason, the white became the tie and dye colors when I <laughs> was finished. <laughs> yeah, man. When the show was done, I took off this African gown 
I, you know, somebody say, hey, what happened to your clothes? <laughs> they became said, a full what? member of the Generation Gap. And, yes. And, and, and where you went after that? Well, at the time, though, I was invited to be a member of the in-crowd band. Oh. The in-crowd band got a deal immediately after me joining and uh, with Island Records. I, the very first recording I played for them as a drummer now, having learned drums, yeah. the very first recording went number one. And that was it for the group. Some persons decided not to stay in Jamaica, you know, for fear for their lives. Mm-hmm. And that was so sad that that happened because right on the verge of the group breaking big. I recall doing some shows in the UK with the in crowd and the reviews on Echoes magazine and so on were amazing. You know, one writer said that we were the best act since Bob Marley. You know, and it was different. And it also helped to develop Lovers Rock in the UK because Phil Callender um, was originally from Panama. And Panamanian music had that Latin element. Sometimes the chords can be sweet. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that influenced the type of songs he wrote. He wrote a song called Baby My Love that also went number one in England. And... Um, I believe that is one of the songs that also helped to um, build on Lovers Rock in the UK, and especially from groups, you know. And um, when we toured, some of the the, the, the top groups um, came to watch us perform, you know. And I believe we might have inspired some of them, but it was short-lived mm-hmm. when members of the group migrated. But but um. Lu Chang was the saxophonist in the group. And Lu, Lu Lin Chang, um, he loved electronics and the electrical engineering. And so he moved on to become vice chairman of Sony, you know, Sony um, uh, Interactive Services, and was one of the developers of um, PlayStation. Wow. But yeah. So that was his. Um, you know, second love, I think, because yeah. I think it was his first love. But having left Jamaica, he went into that. But to this day, I remain in music. My first love. <laughs> All right, Next so, my wife. Uh, 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 in case my wife is watching this. <laughs> my wife and my children. Of course, and my of mom. Uh, yeah, man. 
know, at some point, you, you, I, I, when I, I think the first time I met you, personally and upfront, because I remember you guys as a youngster when you were, when you did that remake of the Michael Jackson song. So I knew of the Brownie Brunch from that time, but first time I met you was at, at Studio One. And I think this was like in the, the 80s, the early 80s, where you were working with, with, with Pop, Pablo Black, Baga Walker, and the guitarist, I can't... Dalton, I, I, Dalton I can't, was there as well. Dalton was on guitar. Oh yeah, Dalton and another guitarist who was Larry there. Larry White. Larry White. Larry White, yeah. You and were, Ernie Langlin used to come in on some of the sessions. Yeah, too. I wasn't there when Ernie was there. I, I, a couple of the sessions, I definitely saw you guys. And you were working on a, a whole heap of a, a tracks or doing overdubs to update yeah. them for Coxon. That was an amazing period because I heard songs that even today I don't, I have not been released. I yeah. heard some of the original, the, the, the five-member Whalers song. How, how did it feel to be, to be working as a, as, a, as a youth, younger person and knowing about these legends? Because by that time, Bob was, a, was the king and, and the legends have been made. How was a musician it felt to be working on those tracks? I'm really happy to be to have been a part of that journey at Studio One. Coxon used to come and pick me up at my home at six in the mornings. And um, we started working, like say, at eight, and we would go till the five o'clock. So it was a daily event, like from nine to five. Well, from eight to five, or as early as all the musicians got there. And um, it was like a school for me a school that I could never pay the tuition for. That's how I would put it, you know. And, and um, it taught me work, work, work ethics, as seen from Coxon himself. He kept his documentation well kept. You know, I mean, I recall um, him finding contracts signed by, like from in the 60s, where artists don't remember what they signed. The one particular artist, um, I asked him to re-record a song for me, a popular artist whom we really loved. And I asked him about his publishing, if he had any publishing contract on the song or song. He said, no. I said, let me check with Coxon. And when I called Coxon, Coxon faxed me a copy of the contract. Mm. And when the artist saw it, he said, oh, a, a bad word came out. <laughs> and I yeah. said, oh, I didn't remember this. And this was his signature. Yeah. You know? yeah. So Coxon had his things well documented. And many times I think he might have gotten a bad name. Yes. From persons who just didn't remember or didn't care to remember. Or um, you know, they just believe that, oh, somebody suggested, say, oh, yeah. then man, they rip you off. Yeah, it is a narrative that, that continues to, to be perpetuated that most producers in Jamaica were robbers and they robbed the, the musicians and the, 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 the performers of their rights. Mm-hmm. And, and when the truth be told, it, 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 it's, it's a slightly different picture than, than what these people try to make themselves be victims. 
Mm-hmm. Of course, those days we never had the the, the privilege of um, like YouTube and Google and yeah. so get information. Yeah. And some probably never even bothered to seek out information. Yeah, from quite early in the seventies, while I was touring with the In Crowd, first time in the UK, I got myself some books. This business of music, there are books available, mm-hmm. but not everyone would choose to you know. Um, fortify themselves basically with the knowledge you know that is necessary so when a contract is put before them they don't seek to get a lawyer yeah it costs too much and they don't understand what they're signing but in most cases i believe the the, the producers are not really ripped off anyone is what you signed to yeah if you have signed to a particular thing that's what stands yeah until the term runs out yeah or and there's a breach. In terms but, of artist royalties, sometimes I saw a person will say that, you know, uh, the song was put out and it was a big hit and big hit. And, <laughs> and, 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 and then they said they never got any royalties from it. But the, the, the way the business run, if you don't recoup the money that you Invested, invested. Yeah, invested in terms of studio time, in terms of musician, in terms of uh, artist taxi fear. Thank you, and and probably an advance too. Yeah, and 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 the manufacturing of the records, the labels, the marketing, and all of that. You can't be anybody. And sometimes, although a song might seem that is a hit song, it Mm. don't really sell that much. For you to recoup all your expenses, so there's no money to exactly. to, to to be had. Yeah, exactly. I think we diverted a bit from the, the question, though we're um, yeah. experience at Studio One. Yeah. When I met Ernie Wrangling, <clears throat> I realized people like Tommy McCook. I met Tommy McCook also yeah. and Roland Alfonso because I actually went to Studio One in the seventies. Not the 80s when you met me there, yeah, but I started yeah. out in the 70s. Mm. And Count Machuki, King Stitt, I met all of those, these guys. And then um, I realized the true greatness when you are able to um, hear them in action. Sometimes we only capture what's on records or what is on tape and so on. But sometimes the, 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 the jam sessions before, just working out a song, uh, you know, it's amazing what you hear at times. And you can only, um, from the experience being there is the only way you can really appreciate the level of greatness, you know, from these, um, apart from what is captured on video and so on. But we had extremely great musicians and musicianship, mm-hmm. which is what we need to um, ensure that we do not lose into this world, reggae world. You know, those musicians were true musicians, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they gave their best, you know, no half-hearted thing. You know, and um, apart from them, Pablo Black and Baga Walker, you know, for me were, were among greatest in what they did. Baga to me is the greatest roots bass player. You know, he worked on some of those, um, uh, R.S. Sandy and, and um, you know, the, the real roots reggae song, um, mm-hmm. you know, from, from Studio One era. Simple bass lines, 
And that taught me that truly less is more. You know, sometimes you, you can overcrowd productions, which I see in some of today's recordings. Some of the very simple bass lines and the simplest drum patterns and so are the ones that create hits. You know, those stylings. And um, I believe some musicians might, um, having been trained and all that, might want to showcase their craft. But that doesn't always um, appeal to the, the, the buyer, the audience out there. We don't have a world filled with musicians, that who, the ones who can appreciate certain extended chords or certain fills from a drummer that is not necessary. You know, so this also taught me to utilize that, what I've learned with Steely and Cleavy. You know, from in the 70s. And so uh, so when Steely and Cleavy started working together as a team, minimalism was the order of the day. Yeah. Minimalistic music. All right. So you're putting what from, is necessary in yeah. the song. So you move from Gap, you do some work at Coxon on a regular basis from the 70s going down. And then you were a part of the Studio One band. Which yes. Freddie McGregor. Yes. Yes. I, I actually... Um, the Studio One Band, Freddie McGregor, decided to um, use Studio One Band as his touring band and recording band. Yeah. From uh, just the sound that he heard at Studio One, he also was a part of that family, we call it. And um, it was the best period of my experience on the road as playing live music and so on. You know, and... Um, I, felt, I tell you though, although we've gone there, I should backtrace a bit. I left out a very key person in the journey, and he's Augustus Pablo. Okay. Augustus Pablo in the early 70s. Um, Steel and Cleaver first recording, I should say, was 1974 together. As, um, but Brownie Bunch was 72 recording. But as a musician, we both played on our very first song together, 1974, for Earl 16. Now, Earl 16 knew Augustus Pablo, and the results that he got, um, you know, he said, no, bring them in, man. Although Steely was 11 and I was 14, wow, quite young at the time yeah. to be in a recording session. I remember Sylvan Morris was the engineer who also recorded Bob, Bob Marley and the Wheelers. And so, and Sylvan was quite accommodative to us, made us comfortable because there was a level of nervousness as a kid, well, a teenager, put it that way. And still, it was 11, <laughs> pre-teen. You know, you expect that you're going to hear some endless bad word or something if you make mistakes. Yeah. But not so at all. You know, they were quite accommodating and would um, actually commend when we did something right as a wicked youth, you know, that kind of thing. So we ended up working on Human Dells, Africans Must Be Free album.
So that was one of the first albums. And we met Yamebola through him as well, and White Mice, you know, that set of um, artists who yeah. used to be around Augustus Pablo. I went on to work on other songs with um, Augustus Pablo over the years until his passing, you know, and um, they are back to studio one now. Yeah. So I started touring with Freddie McGregor and um, experience on the road really helped in my growth, I would say, you know. Um, you had to be on time to catch the planes, had to be on time when it seemed impossible going from one part of the States to another. Sometimes not even being able to go into a hotel room. Some, sometimes you had to just drive immediately. And um, hearing stories about Bob Marley also being very, um, you know, well, he was always on time. That was motivation. Because one of my very first tours, we actually had hired um, Bob Marley's tour bus. You know, it was a, a mobile home, it was, I recall. And I just could imagine, you know, that, oh, wow, this is, you know, <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Because my first tours with the in-crowd, we had a little small bus, a van, a van, actually, you know. And I can recall, um, you know, this is kind of anecdotal still, but the bus crashed on one occasion, and we had to go from London to Manchester. Quite a good run. And the driver came with a Mini for the, the band to fit into the Mini with equipment. <laughs> and I tell you, it's like, I can imagine how, how sardine feel. <laughs> yeah, so we drove all that way and we got stopped by the police. And the police, um, you know, when they heard we were Jamaicans, they were quite nice, I would say. You know, not what I expected. I don't know if that is how they treat the UK blacks. But for us, they said, okay, you all get out now. How many of you? And we counted and, you know, say it was like eight persons. They said, are you trying to break the world record? So I say, uh, no. They said, well, you're far off because they got 21 in a mini. Okay. You know? So we said, look, please give us a chance. We need to get to this venue and we'll, you know, fix the, the problem. And they said, oh, cherry out, <laughs> carry on then. <laughs> and um, that was my first run-in with the police outside of Jamaica. Well, never had any run-in with the police in Jamaica at that time anyway. You know, but um, uh, that was um, awakening us to different cultures. Yeah. And then you're able to weigh where we are as a people in Jamaica, which so I believe is very good when people travel. Yeah. and experience other cultures. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review and even drop us a comment if something really stood out to you.